Sure. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Warren Letter Podcast. I'm your host, Russell Warren, the author of the Warren Letter, a weekly financial newsletter that comes directly to your inbox. We have an, uh, you know, we've been talking on this podcast for probably months now about the uh, potential conflict between Russia and Ukraine, how that would affect world markets, how that would affect specifically gold and the commodities markets. And for a long time, um, since I've started podcasting, um, I've been following Mark Rossano. He is a uh, geopolitical expert. He's a commodity trading expert. And he's been on this uh, Russia-Ukraine situation way before it was even on my radar. And so I've learned so much from him, um, you know, just following him on Twitter and, and uh, reading some of his stuff, listening to his YouTube channel. I mean, he's got some really, really in-depth analysis. And so, uh, you know, for a long time, I've tried to get him on the show. Uh, the the call-in app that we use only had um, iPhone functionality, but now, thankfully, it has uh, Android functionality as well. And so Mark was finally able to get on and schedule us, and I'm super excited to have Mark Rosano on this podcast. Uh, Mark, how are you? Good. No, it's a pleasure to uh, to finally have, make this come alive. I think we started trying to talk in, what was it, December, when we started to, uh, to, to talk about Russia and trying to get on the podcast? Yes, yes. We saw we saw what was coming uh, back then before. I mean, I think it was on most people's radar. And, and I knew I wanted to have you on, you know, for my own personal benefit to learn from you, but also for my for my listeners to kind of hear, you know, your expertise on, on what to say. And so it's 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 awesome. And I'm super excited to have you on. Um, well, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. So so, Mark, just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, kind of a brief history. Now, I know you're the CEO of a company called C6 Capital Holdings. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So under C6 Capital Holdings, we have three arms. Uh, one of them is a consulting arm where we do uh, geopolitical analysis. Uh, we do uh, corporate planning, looking at commodities, how things are changing, you know, the macro uh, world at large and, and how things are going to shift. And then we also have a private equity fund uh, where we invest in base load uh, capacity. Right now, we're focusing on hydro as well as the grains and fertilizer market. Uh, with with uh, some some things that we're looking at on the on the fertilizer front. Hey, Mark, did you cut off? Oop, it sounds like Mark might be having some uh, technical difficulties. No. Okay, oh, can you hear me? Yeah, I can yeah. hear you now. You cut okay, off. Okay, so, so oh, sure. <clears throat> so, and then, and then I'm uh, I put out the research through Primary Vision Network, uh, Primary Vision, and then I have the Primary Vision Network, where I continue uh, continue to put out some of this different uh, technology, uh, some of these different pieces, where I look at the macro uh, macro economy every Thursday and geopolitics, as well as the EIA show in global energy, and then on Friday where I look at the frac spread count. So those are the kind of the key pieces when we're looking at you know what is happening right now because what is Russia but a behemoth in the energy world in the commodities world at large, and then obviously and they're a very big geopolitical uh, player as they've kind of reemerged throughout the years with some different uh, key components throughout uh, you know let's call it the early two thousands and then again when you look at what happened with Syria and now what they're doing with Ukraine. 
Okay, Mark. So, uh, just a brief, you know, uh, summary. Just how did you get into um, becoming kind of a geopolitical uh, analyst and, and a market analyst, especially in the energy markets? How did you get into that role? Sure. So I, I've, I'm kind of a, a nerd in, on that regard. I've been interested in geopolitics since I was in eighth grade and the interconnective workings of the world at large. You know, I, I'm, I'm under the belief that if you push on one string, you know, a million strings, you know, either slack or, or, or get taught. And I've always enjoyed trying to figure out, well, how are things going to shift and move about? And that was how I, I really got into the geopolitical front. And then what is more geopolitical than commodities? And, and that was how I, I kind of stumbled into that. Um, then I, I started at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. You know, my, my background is FX rates, commodities, you know, all three of them, obviously very geopolitically oriented. And then I, I spent my time in global infrastructure, uh, doing forwards, futures, uh, equities, options. Uh, then from there, I ended up uh, living in the Middle East for uh, for a time. There, I was uh, living out of Abu Dhabi uh, with in Mazdar City, and then we would bounce back and forth between Dubai, uh, Riyadh, and in uh, in Doha. And then I also uh, worked a bit with the military to get. Uh, equipment and you know more along the lines of diesel and gasoline into the uh, Afghanistan and understanding those different uh, you know dynamics in terms of Ural. Hey Mark, it sounds like you cut off a little bit again. Can you hear me there? Yeah, yeah, you're back on. Well, I don't know why. My last you said was in terms of Ural. Uh, in terms of Urals, in terms of uh, refining, you know, what is needed when you're looking at uh, utilizing the different pieces for uh, for making a, a barrel of gasoline or a barrel of diesel, because there's so many things that go into it when you're looking at the underlying construction of and creation of refined products. Okay, so and, and it sounds like you found a way to what you said is that you were a geopolitics nerd and you kind of found a way to make a living off of that by by providing your analysis to companies and and by you know trading and giving advice on commodities uh from that is that correct yeah i've been on the buy side for the last uh you know since 2006 so i've I've always had a very much top-down approach and it's always looked at the geopolitical and macroeconomic underpinnings to understand you know where 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 is the ship going because especially when you're looking at geopolitics it takes a long time for an aircraft carrier to turn but then once it's turned you know things move rapidly and so it's something where it's fun because you can kind of look at how is the world shifting how are alliances moving how are uh, you know because long-term friendships mean something especially when you're looking at throughout history you know things don't change all that much so we do a lot with generational dynamics how are the dynamics shifting uh, locally in the region? And I think that's a lot of what's happening right now, especially when we're looking at you know Russia, Ukraine, and some of the different underpinnings and how they've been building up since essentially the early '90s. Okay, so all right, let's uh, you know let's jump into kind of the Russia-Ukraine situation. Um, it's been interesting to me because, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, you know. Uh, I've been talking about this since probably around Thanksgiving. I know you've been talking about a potential for a flashpoint here for a much longer than that. But now it seems um, everybody and their brother has an opinion on what's going on here. And so um, 
if you could just provide the listeners just kind of a brief overview about how we got to this point, um, maybe starting just before the, or you can start wherever you want, but maybe starting a little bit before the maiden revolution and kind of how we got to this, this tipping point here. Sure. So when you look at, at where we sit right now, especially as, as I know everyone's probably heard about the DNP and the LNP and what are they. So when you look at, at Donbass in total, so that's the region. So then there's, there's the Donetsk and the Luhansk, which is the, the two key areas that are of interest. And if you look at Crimea, you know, Crimea is a, the peninsula that's kind of, there's no easy way to get there outside of the sea, uh, the sea of uh, Azu. So when you look at the way that they've they've structured it since 2014, there was always a fear that Russia was going to try to build a land bridge to connect Russia to Crimea. Now you had the Minsk agreement that would come out that tried to create some sort of connection so that we wouldn't see more bloodshed, that we wouldn't see anything uh, more aggressive. But then that continued on, and and here's where we we see the uh, you know the Donetsk, the Luhansk, where you're seeing the, this flashpoint with the rebel-held areas. Now today, we have them essentially saying that they want to be recognized as an independent state. The problem is the rebels only hold a percentage of that whole region. So in order for Russia to recognize the whole part of it, not just the piece that's rebel held, there would have to be some sort of conflict in order to essentially bring the rest of it into the fold. So when you look at, 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 at where things sit, that, you know, essentially Russia is trying to look at the soft underbelly of where places are highly, you know, throughout history, just more, more Russian than they are Ukrainian. And that's when you start to look at how things have progressed since the nineties, since the fall of the USSR and, and how we've gotten to this point. And before I, I go into how we got to this point, that's kind of where where we sit right now. And those are the things that we're seeing in the news of, you know, uh, mortar fire, artillery fire. It, it's all being, it's all happening in this rebel controlled region, which is where there's constant back and forth on who's doing what, is it a false flag? Is it something that's being created? And those are things that we can either debunk or prove as we go through the remainder of the podcast. Okay, great. And so, Okay, so this the the most breaking news now. Flash forward all the way to to the you know within an hour, is that um, Putin is going to make a decision today whether or not to recognize the uh, DNR uh, and the LPR republics. Uh, basically, those two regions that you were talking about that are majority Russian or favor uh, Russia that were invaded essentially by Russia and other forces in 2014, and kind of where this. Uh, you know, back and forth is going where, you know, Russia's putting out some information saying Ukraine's attacking them. Ukraine is saying Russia's attacking them. Um, if Putin does decide to recognize the LPR and DNR, is that basically the uh, escalation that uh, it can't be walked back from at a certain point? You know, it, it depends on the wording. And this is where politics gets interesting, because if he talks about uh, uh, recognizing the area that they control, then the answer is there's no change. But if they talk about 
annexing or or recognizing the whole region, not just the part that the rebels hold, that then becomes a much bigger push. So it's all going to be how is it worded? Are they just going to accept what is currently there and they're just going to essentially take the, the, the quote-unquote dotted lines, make them a firm line, or are they going to look to take the whole region? Now, there's there's a lot of reasons why they could do one or the other. But realistically, Ukraine is not the same country it was in 2014. It's more organized. It has a lot more uh, equipment. There's a very big anti-Russian you know, viewpoint, which has always been there since the 90s, but has only become even firmer at this point because they do not want to become part of the U.S., the Russia again. They don't want to relive the USSR. And there would be a huge fight tooth and nail, and you would see some sort of underground resistance that would rival something that we haven't seen since France France in the 40s. So when you look at that actually controlling this land, you would need an occupational force that would be massive in scale. And you would leave your whole eastern flank completely exposed as there's about 75 to 80 percent of the Russian military might that is currently sitting uh, in or around the Ukraine. And now, Mark, I've seen uh, some analysts say that the reason that Russia was able to move, you know, such a large amount of their force to the western side, to the Ukrainian border and leave their eastern flank uh, open is because of this new Russia-China alliance. I mean, do you think that that meeting previous to the Olympics kind of precipitated that? It, it made it easier and, and it gave them comfort that they could move some of their assets away from China in the near term. But China has always been a, a problem and has always been a fear point and, you know, going back throughout history. And if you look at Ladakh and what happened between India and China, Russia was actually the first country within an hour to support India after the Ladakh incident. And they actually sped up the delivery of systems, both S-400s as well as other military equipment. And right now there's currently Indian soldiers that are being trained within Russia how to use these systems. Now, we all know what China did to Australia and Japan after they came out and supported India after the Ladakh incident, but they never said anything about Russia. And that's when, when I saw them ignore that or essentially gloss over it, you knew that there was something a little bit bigger at play. But Russia was very firm with supporting India, and they've had a very rich history going back through the Silk Road uh, into Persia, which is where a lot of the goods and, and the connections came with, with Russia. So while they, they do have an, an, an alignment, you also have to remember that China claims a large part of the Russian continent, especially uh, the, the eastern part where they have a warm water uh, where they have ports for their navy and where a lot of their natural gas and oil originates from, they claim China claims that as their own under the same nine dash line that they that they use to claim South China Sea. So while there can be some soft uh, allegiance, there's also going to be well, you know, I. I've seen what you've said. I've seen what you've done. And if you remember back to the uh, to the 30s and 40s, 
you know, Hitler and uh, and and uh, and Stalin had an agreement, and we know how that ended. So, there, there, you know, Putin, as I like to call him, the the, the true Bond villain, because I do think he is a a, a master chess player. He he understands history. He understands the way this looks. And and while he is okay moving some of this equipment in a short period of time, I'm not sure how comfortable he would be allowing this much exposure to this flank to someone that at the end of the day he really doesn't trust as as china continues to build nuclear silos and based on where they're building them they're not all that good at hitting the u.s but they're actually better at hitting russian uh, strong points well, that's interesting okay so this um this fear of the what people call the dragon bear this russia and china allying against the u.s and europe creating you know, either their own currency or having, you know, trading agreements to avoid U.S. sanctions. That's, it sounds like in your opinion, that's more of a a friendship of convenience temporarily and not, you know, a long lasting uh, ally. A hundred percent. And when you look at the different structures, you know, Russia needs the U.S. in, in terms of countering Chinese expansion. You know, and and China needs the U.S. because, well, let's be fair, we're their biggest we're their biggest buyer. So there's a lot of this these nuances that come through. Now, Russia also, you know, to Putin being who he is, he's not stupid. You know, what is what has he been doing? He's been building up FX reserves since 2012. He's been building up uh, gold reserves since 2011. You know, he's been wanting to get away from the dollar dominance and finding ways to get around it, and the European banks. We're, we're more than happy to transact in euro and not in dollars, especially as they increase their um, their exposure on the natural gas side. So then when you look at, at what China is doing, China is also looking to get away from the exposure to SWIFT, the exposure to the dollar. But, you know, there's still 80 to 85 percent of global trade is transacted in dollars. So it becomes very difficult because you need a lot of infrastructure in terms of wires and banks and other just general movements of dollars, uh, you know, whether that be U.S. or other, in order to facilitate that. And and now, while you can have some of the inner workings there, it's very difficult to do that. Which is why you know the dollar dominance has been able to last as long as it has. Okay, so 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 if Russia does further escalate things and tensions are put on. Uh, Russia by the NATO countries, it will um, have an effect. I mean, I saw a thing that Putin said Russia doesn't give a shit about sanctions, but it sounds like it will actually hurt them. Yes. You know, the the thing that we have to appreciate – Russia re- relies on Europe for you know their base load capacity of natural gas sales, Ural sales, uh, CPC. Then you look to China, that's ESPO, that's SOKOL. You know, there's there's some key movements of of product, and then. Then we have to think about car manufacturing. You know, like Russia is one of the largest providers of palladium. You know, there's there's a lot of pieces that outside of just oil and gas, but Europe is their biggest buyer. And so, if you start taking away that that buying, there's only so much that can be redirected into China. But at the same time, China's also come out saying, "Hey, like maybe you shouldn't invade Ukraine because that's going to make our lives more difficult with the U.S." So there's there's some 
back and forth in terms of, of how this is going to go. And, and the, then the impact to their economy is going to be severe. And to be clear, it will also be massive to Europe because, you know, the, the only people that really kind of came to the fruition of we really need to diversify our flow was really Poland and Hungary. They, they were the first to be on top of it. And, you know, as, as we know, in 07 and 08, Russia turned off the pipelines into Hungary for six months. The, you know, the, it, the heating was scarce, and they've wanted to get to only about sixty percent of their natural gas coming through and supporting you know the, the Hungarian uh, government. But when you look at Russia, you know a lot of these pipelines go through the Ukraine. So if if they were to were to annoy or to do something to really drive a, a deeper wedge. No, I, I don't think the, the Ukrainians w- would look to blow up pipelines, but you could easily take out a pump station. You could you could make that whole pop the whole pipeline structure completely obsolete and take away your sales process into the rest of the rest of Europe. Now that would hit both sides and, and the floating LNG market is just not enough to replace the Russian gas, which is basically baseloaded at this point in terms of what comes through. Now it, it would help uh, blunt some of the, the, the initial impacts. And as we get, come out of winter and into the shoulder season, it would make it a little bit easier, but you're still looking at a huge loss. And when you look at German numbers of 25% PPI, you know, inflation at approaching over 5% in Europe, Taking away, you know, cheap gas and and cheap oil is only going to make those numbers that much worse and increase the pain for the European region, not just the European, not just the Russian side, where there's two sides to this coin. Okay, so it sounds like um, Europe, if they impose sanctions on Russia, would be proverbially shooting themselves in the foot here because by sanctioning Russia, they're also punishing themselves economically. Correct. And there's no easy way to re- to replace that, especially given the amount of urals, you know, the amount of oil and then just uh, bluntly just the amount of gas that they consume that comes from the Russian entities. And they've 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 shut down a lot of their storage. Like there was already a concern from in 2017 and 2018 that as the UK took down some of their natural gas storage, that they were going to increase the volatility of natural gas prices. And we've seen that happen now in spades in terms of the volatility that's been created. So that's also not lost on on Putin. Like he he knows that. He's looking at that and he's like, "Hey guys, like what are we doing here? Like you're you're increasing the pain for you." We need to sell. Why are we not approving Nord Stream 2? Why are we not moving the economic ball forward? And and this is also something that he's trying to show of, look, I'm, I'm a big country. I've been ignored for so long. You need to recognize the you know, Russia's back, and, and here we are, and we're willing to use our, our military might in, to protect our economic interests. And this is also a little bit of a shot across the bow when you look at China, because there was always a concern of can Russia muster, you know, can Russia really create and really, you know, let's just say reinvigorate the machine to to address an attack on them or or to make an offensive. And this is this is them answering the call of yes, we can and look at how we can do it. 
And if you remember back in 20, I think it was 2017 or 2018, you know, they held a, uh, a, a war games up in, uh, in, in Siberia and in, in Eastern Russia. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Eastern Russia. And, and when you look at it, you know, they invited the Chinese to come watch and to be military, uh, you know, just onlookers. And it's funny because it, it, it showed how they would address an invasion on the ground coming north. And you look at it, it's like, well, the only there's only one country that can do that, and it's China, because the U.S. isn't landing on your coast and coming across. Like, you're clearly sending a signal, and and that's and they've continued to do that. So there's always a multi-pronged purpose to this. But now he's gotten himself in such a position, he needs something in return. In order so that he doesn't lose face, he doesn't lose you know confidence on a global level, but also here, which is, does he just accept the the um, the rebel held region, you know, and then that's that helps offset. Does he only does he accept you know Nord Stream two being approved and Crimea uh, and then essentially Crimea officially becoming a part of Russia? You know, he's going to need something big. And some of the non-starters that he's offered up is that, you know, moving NATO back to the 1997 region. But, you know, I'll go through why that would be a thing in, in a little bit when we look at the history of how we've gotten to this point in terms of between Russia and the Ukraine. Okay. And so let's kind of go now in uh, reverse chronological order. So six minutes ago, my, I don't know if you know, Ambassador Michael McFall. He was the uh, ambassador to Russia um, during the Obama administration. He's been making the you know rounds on all the mainstream uh, news. He tweeted out, he said to all, just eight minutes ago now, he said to all those who have argued for years that Russia was committed to the Minsk agreements, Putin is about to prove you wrong once and for all, and the qu- consequences will be very tragic. So Michael McFaul has been saying for a long time that that Putin is about to invade. He's going to go into the Ukraine. They're going to take it over. I don't know if you've seen the articles about uh, there's hit lists and camps and all kinds of crazy stuff that I'm, I'm hearing. Now, no one can predict for sure because, you know, now that they're ratcheting up tensions, the fog of war can create very chaotic situation. But what do you think? The, how, how does this end? How, how does this how does this all get resolved? Well, it's it's interesting because when you look at the Minsk agreement and then you go back to the Budapest memorandum, there was always a concern and, and openly so since the 90s that Russia was never going to hold to the borders that were agreed upon. So it was only just a matter of time as to when do these borders fall and how long will they last? So the way... When you look at how they're positioned, in order to go into the country and to maintain control, you need an occupying force. And I don't think they have the demographics to do it, nor do they have the willpower to go in and hold a complete country. Now, they could go in, they could knock out the government, they could put in a government that's friendlier to to Russia, but you're going to come into a severe uh, pushback, which is why I think the 
the the move would be to go and stay in that region of Donbass and go further south and using the other pieces as let, let's call it some sort of diversion where you you know Ukraine has to address that so they're going to have to have their forces lined up alongside Russia where realistically Russia only has their eyes set on one entity which would be that connection of a land bridge uh, that would go into Crimea which would make the Ukraine's life very difficult in both the Sea of Azov as well as the Black the Black Sea. So there's a lot of benefits from what they're trying to do and it so it's likely they will come out and recognize that region as an independent region. Okay, so you, so you think that if Russia does invade it'll be limited to what they call the Donbas region which is the land bridge to Crimea where it's right now it's been under a civil war since 2014, you think that that's kind of the ultimate play and that's how it'll play out. Yes. And there, there's likely to see, you know, in order to avoid that, they would need some significant uh, confirmation on the Nord Stream 2, uh, the fact that the Ukraine would never be allowed into NATO and that very specific NATO equipment will never be placed on their borders because when Turkey was going through their own uh, unknown if you go if you think back to 18 and to 19 you know before that happened we moved nuclear weapons out of turkey for fear of you know what happens if there's a civil war if they lose control and now again i i don't have a hundred percent fact but a lot of there was a big view that some of these uh, some of this equipment ended up in romania and that uh, aggravated uh, the the Russians because of the proximity that these nuclear this nuclear arsenal was now to their coast. Uh, I'm sorry, to their border, and that became uh, it's when some of these uh, conversations continue to diverge and 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 become a bit stronger in rhetoric, which is where we kind of sit today. Which is why there's a certain amount of unknown in terms of well, you know, Putin has said they have to go back to the 1997 region of of NATO, which would kick 14 countries out of NATO, which we know is a non-starter. But he could then turn around and say, okay, well, you, they can stay in NATO, but you can't have and then list out the equipment, which would range from obviously nuclear weapons to THAAD or the terminal high altitude anti-defense missiles that the U.S. uses as a means of recognizing a missile launch. And then it starts the calculation on creating the air defense that we would need to protect ourselves and our allies. So there are demands that he could make that would be, it would be extreme, but not impossible to meet. And, and I, but I do think that there's going to be some sort of flashpoint where there's going to be movement People are going to die on both sides, and then that that's going to be that that okay. Well, we showed what we're going to do it. We've gained some ground. Now let's talk. Okay, um, so that is kind of I would say uh, in the middle of the you know best case to worst case scenarios. That's kind of in the middle, and that's usually how things fall. Um, you know, that would be, you know, the fact that you said people are going to be dying and there's going to be wars is it's awful for humanity, but in terms of, you know, how bad this could get and the, some of the reports coming out from, you know, the media about potential Russian plans to surround Kiev and round up political defectors and send them to camps. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff I've been reading. 
um, the scenario you pointed out doesn't seem as extreme as that. And so for, for world peace reasons and humanity, let's hope that that really is the case. Um, now, it was it's, it's something you said was interesting. You said that Putin's a, a, uh, a master chess player and that you call him kind of a, a, a Bond villain. Um, is this... Uh, is this kind of a, that I've seen the ratcheted up Russian propaganda against Ukraine working in Russia? I mean, some of it, it some of it has worked to obscure, I think, what the real truth is. No, you know, there's so many different articles coming out every 10 minutes that you don't know what the truth is. But I wonder, is it does you does it does the Russian people like kind of believe this stuff is what I'm getting at. So yeah, the, the the short answer is is you'll never know because all uh, di- dissenters have either left or remained quiet. And I, I don't know if you saw there was there were six people that showed up to a protest in uh, in the middle of Moscow, and and they were quickly ushered away, and you know probably to never be heard of again. And that's the unfortunate thing. So he has complete control of the narrative and what is happening within the region now, based on the people that I've spoken to on the ground. Nobody wants war with the Ukraine. There is nobody in Russia that I have spoken to that's like, yeah, we have to go in there and, you know, beat them back. It's like, why are we doing this? You know, we're going to you're talking about a country that before Crimea produced almost 80 percent of the ballistic missiles within the, the Russian military. You know, even after the the Iron Curtain fell, they were still the main, not only creator, but also assembler of the, the uh, ballistic missiles and the, and the uh, intelligent equipment that is actually in Russia at the moment. And then if you look at how the pipelines move, a large part of, the, of natural gas goes through the Ukraine in very large pipelines. So there's always been an interconnected relationship with the two with a lot of industrial production that went from the Ukraine into Russia because Russia would send over you know, their raw materials, semi-finished products, and then they would be assembled, processed in the Ukraine, and then sent right back into Russia. So there was always a, a certain amount of connectivity. The problem for Putin is he likes to have overarching control. And he had a government that was very friendly to Russia, which then got booted in 2014, uh, well, 2012. And then as you got through 2014, you know, they really solidified their hold and the kind of anti-Russian became more pervasive. Now, that's when you start looking at what they're doing in Russia. Everyone's like, well, why are we doing this? You know, what's what's the end goal? Like, what are we gaining by going into this region? Are, are we are we going to go get the, the facilities in the factories? Are we going to go get some sort of, you know, fertilizer production, some some additional farmland? Like, what is the end goal here? And, and that's where there's a bit of an unknown as to what is the direction he wants to take this. Okay. And um, so I don't know if you uh, I've ever listened to Professor Mearsheimer. He's kind of a he's a little obscure. He's a famous uh, professor. He talks about Russia, EU relations a lot. And his basically his theory is that if the only way that this conflict is going to resolve is that the EU agrees that Ukraine will never become a part of NATO. Um, And so, you know, and I know that is a non-starter for both, or, or sorry, for that Ukraine never becomes a part of NATO. And I know that's a non-starter for, uh, you know, Ukraine itself. 
but it seems like some European countries are kind of leaning that way. Um, so what do you think about the, the response and, and, you know, not to get political, but what do you think about the response from the EU and the United States in this crisis? I mean, are they playing into Putin's hands or are they providing a good deterrent? I think there there's a mixture of both. And, and the problem is when you look at Ukraine becoming part of NATO, you know, there was a concern back in the 90s that that the Ukraine was going to be a, a playing ground for 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 outside forces without them being able to control their own destiny. And and I think that that fear has played out pretty handedly at this point. And I think that's a backroom agreement. It'll never be said in public, but I think that is an agreement that uh, that both sides are willing to make in terms of the Ukraine will never be allowed into NATO. And, you, you know, that would be a big victory for Putin. He could go out and say, you know, we have assurance. We could come out and say, you know, there, there's always an opportunity. We're still in the works. But there was a, you know, a handshake in a back room somewhere that this will never happen. Now, when you look at the reliance and the build out of Nord Stream 2, if you look at how they have mishandled their, uh, their, you know, it's called the green shift, they've left themselves very open to to Russia and their, their natural resources without any real thought or deviation from what happens if this takes longer than we expected. So I think that they've played into his hands on the natural resources side with little, uh, let's just say, little focus on speeding up alternatives that would have uh, helped brunt some of the, uh, <laughs> some of the strength that, that Putin could have on the uh, natural gas front. Okay, and now this um, these kind of you know agreements, the talks, and and releasing um, intelligence, U.S. intelligence to the media and things like that. I mean, do you think this is a proper strategy? I mean, of course, Americans will never support you know putting American boots on the ground and fighting for Ukraine. But um, um, what do you what do you think about this strategy of kind of releasing intelligence and and maybe you know. Uh, stopping Putin from doing certain actions because he may have a mole in his uh, organization. Well, it's it's interesting because when you uh, and again, I'm not a TikTok guy, but there's been a lot of you know videos recorded on the Russian side. Now, at at what point, if you're going to have this massive conflict, that you're going to let people? especially given how controlling Russia is with what is put out into the media, you're going to let these random civilians stand next to soldiers and police officers and record the movement of assets. Like I, I look at that and, and I think it's being used on both sides to, to show a certain amount of fear of, Hey, look how serious we are. We're, we're moving all these tanks. We put a big Z on them so that we know who the, the force is coming in. Like those are things that are very odd and then make it very well known. You know, then when you look at the U.S. and, and what we come out, I, I feel like there was, there was going to be an invasion every five minutes when you look at like, oh, Russia, uh, you know, Putin officially gave the announcement, you know, the, the invasion's happening tonight. Like I can assure you that 
if you know that, that isn't true because there's that is going to be a, a closely guarded secret so that we we can make everybody aware and there would be a launched counterattack or to to meet any type of movement. So there's a lot of misinformation going around, and I do think it's on both sides for a reason, you know, so that you never really know what the truth is and to kind of hide where, where all this is going. Because there's so much information available, you want to try to disguise what is real, what is fake. And, and that's where I, I see these things of like, oh, it's here it is. Like we're the invasion is going to happen within the next hour. It's like, I can assure you, you will never know when that is the case. I mean, somebody's going to get it right because they're going to say it and then it's going to happen in an hour. But I mean, at this point, they've been saying it since December. Now, the other issue is, and the other uh, concern, and people try to discount it, try to support it, is weather. You know, weather is a huge driving factor to when does this happen and how efficient is it? You know, can a tank drive in mud? Sure. A tank can drive in mud. But it makes things very difficult. It makes movement of troops, equipment, a very slow or, you know, an arduous task. And if you think about what, what Russia needs, it's speed. It's, it's the quickness of getting and, and achieving its goal. And you can't do that when the ground is no longer frozen. So when you look at the movement of assets, you know, the true movement, tracks can do it, but wheels get stuck. You know, you can only, you know, think about trying to march, you know, 50,000 men in, in the middle of a, of a mud patch versus on a frozen ground. You know, there's a lot of things that he needs and we're, they're running out of time if you consider not only just the weather side, but also, you know, how long are you going to keep these assets there? Like this costs money. Like this is not a cheap thing to do. And the Russian economy is not exactly in a very strong position. Now, the counterpoint to that is he doesn't care because he's ready to slog it out. So he'll use this weather cover as a means of, uh, you know, let's call it an act of surprise. And then the other side to the economy piece is, well, war never happens when everybody is rich, getting, you know, getting fat and happy with a strong economy. It happens at the opposite, where economies are struggling and people need to kind of, let's just say, uh, you know, provide an enemy that you can blame your economic woes on and try to, to try to, uh, you know, cloud people's minds to what is actually happening with your own country. Yeah, and and you know I, I I agree with you there. I think you're right. The amount of logistical support that's required to you know feed these soldiers to keep their vehicles gassed, uh, you know, is probably very expensive for the Russian economy. And so I think it is. And I hope I wonder if you agree with me that it's at kind of a, a head now where it's like there's either going to be action taken very soon, probably within a week, or it's going to kind of fizzle out into a long, you know, drawn out situation. And I think it's kind of now or never, um, you know, while you were talking about the weather, I pulled up the uh, weather forecast for Kiev. Um, and it's going to be, you know, above freezing every single day uh, for the next week, you know, 40 degrees, 40 degrees, 44. Um, the weather will be clear. It's supposed to rain tonight, but it'll be clear for the rest of the uh the week. And so in terms of frozen ground, I think that that period might have might have already passed and we're going to be getting into the uh, Rasputitsa season here. Um, yep. And so, you know, it's interesting what you said about, 
every five minutes there's news about an invasion or a meeting. And, and so, you know, uh, this is a financial podcast and, you know, we're talking about geopolitics, but generally, you know, how they affect markets and economies and commodities and things like that. And so, you know, um, to be very clear, no one on this podcast is hoping for war, wanting war, any of that stuff. It's just we're trading the markets that are in front of us. And so what was interesting was yesterday, uh, news hit the wire. I'm, I'm sure you saw it where um, it said uh, Biden and Putin agree to a talk with Macron in principle. And futures, the S&P 500 futures were down, I think, 1% at that point. And within 30 30 minutes of that announcement, futures were already green. And then this morning when it when the uh, Kremlin walked that back saying, you know, no meeting has really been set, we're not really sure, futures again turned red and now we're down. S&P looks like it's down about 1% again. So um, this kind of back and forth on information, I mean, how is how is how is this being traded? How, how are you advising clients to kind of look at this? I mean, are there opportunities what do you what do you think about just the economic and market effects of all this stuff yeah i think it's it's opportunities to to play the volatility and but I, i'm i'm doing it a bit more on the option front because i i think that this is really hiding a, a much bigger issue when you look at the s&p 500 you know the general indices and uh, when you look at it across the world because we're in a rate rising cycle we have the fed that is currently in in the midst of raising rates on our when you look at the US you know we're facing over 7% inflation and that's when i get more uh specific on on sticky inflation versus flexible inflation you know a lot of that sticky inflation is is real it's not going away and if anything were to happen with Russia, it's going to make the supply chain that much more fragile and that much uh, more problematic when you look at it from multiple different fronts. So, uh, you know, I think that there is a downward trajectory for the markets in general. So anytime there's a move up, I use that uh, as, a, as a point of entry to the downside. And then, and then the, <laughs> as things come back down, you know, cover some of it and just kind of rinse and repeat until we get a more clear trend coming about. Now, on the crude side, I think you, there's about $10 worth of geopolitical risk, give or take, uh, between Iran and Russia. Uh, I think that if there, you know, when there is that flashpoint, because as you pointed out, you know, af- after amassing all these people, you can't have them just be there for this long and have nothing happen. Like there almost has to be something to, to, to make all of this worthwhile. And I think that'll be the point that once that is announced and there's tanks moving on the ground, you'll get this big surge up in, in, uh, in crude. And then I would look to, to take the other side on that. You know, it's a little difficult to do that in outright. So it's probably something I would look to spread off where, you know, you short the front month and you, and you own something, let's call it, you know, December 22, just to help offset some of that potential risk. But I, I think that there is going to be a, uh, some sort of problem when you look at the markets in general that moves very much outside of Russia and Ukraine in terms of where the market sits. And you're just seeing people are panicked. Like people want a reason to sell. And, and then when you look at something where when all of a sudden the, 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 the reverse headline happens and the market rallies, you know, the volume really isn't the same on the way up as it is on the way down. 
And I think at this point, you're seeing risk get paired back, people looking to be a bit more concerned. And I think the Fed meeting coming up this week is going to be very important to see, okay, is it 25 basis points? Is it 50 basis points? And there's going to be some of that unknown. Now, another one that I like is the dollar. I think the dollar goes to 97 when you're looking at the DXY. Uh, it, it remains a safe haven when you're looking at the the functionality of global trade, and and I think that you're going to see a lot of strength in the dollar versus other currencies, and if anything, this is going to put more pressure on emerging markets than anything else as China continues to uh, to struggle to to really get their own foothold. Okay, so I'm just looking at oil here. It's at about ninety two dollars a barrel. Um, if you see tanks going on the ground, what do you, I mean, what's your price target for that? Well, I, th- I think that there would be a, a quick uh, three to five bucks on that move. And, and you've already seen the issues because you might, you might be sitting there and say, well, why does it matter? Right. So just thinking about what goes on the water. So what goes on the water, there's about 3.9 million barrels a day that gets exported from Russia into the global market just by the water. This isn't including what goes on pipelines just on the water. So when you look at what has happened as this really started to escalate, you had Europe that essentially told their refiners, look, don't buy euros. Like if there's sanctions, you're going to own a cargo that can neither be sold nor refined. So all of a sudden you had euros go no bid, which just means that that it it didn't matter the price you could get, nobody would actually transact. So that has softened a little bit. You've seen some transactions happen on the euro front. But they're four fifty, you know, five dollars off of dated Brent, and uh, you know when this was peaking, there was about seven dollars off of dated Brent with, and, and even though it got that low, there was still nobody buying. So there's there would be a a significant backdrop, and that would just, that's how I would kind of tell how serious is this? Where is the physical market trading? And if we go no bid, and it, it means that there is a real concern at the corporate level of sanctions, then I think you would you would come to the higher end of that, and you would likely see a five to seven dollar move because these refiners are going to panic and have to find other barrels to replace their normal euro car, euro cargoes. That could be Libya, that could be the U.S., that could be Iraq, Nigeria. So I think that's how you're going to see how quickly are we going to go up. And if that's when, depending on how those are trading, I would say we could get to 97 to to $100. But if those continue to trade at a fairly normal, quote, you know, in quotes, uh, spread, then I think the fear of, of sanctions would be limited and you would then look to take the other side of that trade as it exploded higher you know, let's call it only a 3 to $5 move. And then once the kind of, yeah, let's just say the flashpoint happened, then you would see a drift back to the mid 80s. Okay, that, that's, uh, that's really interesting that we can see a $100 barrel of oil here pretty, pretty soon. Yeah. And, and it, the thing is the, the, the shock factor, right? So if you think about a hundred dollar oil and you consider where the consumer is right now, you consider where inflation is right now, diesel at over $4 in the U S you know, gasoline over three fifty at this point, going into driving season in a period where there is no government transfers, you know, there, there is uh, drawn down savings. You're all of a sudden getting to a point of, uh, 
where does this inflation really bite on demand? And, and if you look at today versus, you know, last year, there were a ton of uh, agreements where, you know, stay three nights, get the fourth free, you know, come stay here and we'll give you, you know, $60 to spend on premise. And a lot of these deals that we saw last year, we're not seeing this year. And, and or if we are, they're not as good as the previous because everyone's facing higher wages. They're facing, you know, a, a, a in their own inflation that they're trying to to pass on. So I think that creates a, a, you know, more of that recessionary fear. And that's where even if we do get over that hundred, you're going to get the global economy essentially rejecting some of these moves as you're seeing this inflation really biting the general consumer on a global level, not just in the U.S., like, which would be, I think, a, a bigger detriment to longer, ter- longer term demand over the course of six to 12 months. Okay. Uh, that's very, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, what about equities markets? Um, so, you know, uh, I feel like I said earlier, equity futures were reacting to pretty much every new headline that was coming out. Um, you know, I've heard theories from saying, you know, uh, if, if t- tanks are going through Kiev, people are looking for an excuse to sell, we'll have a limit down day to people saying, you know, uh, how does war in Ukraine affect the earnings of Google and Apple, right? So, so how do you think the equity markets will react? I, I think they they overreact to the downside. I think that there is a lot of pressure in terms of what is happening with not just what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, because at the end of the day, you know, really what what does that mean for the S and P five hundred? I think it's more along the lines of how and when it is happening. And one of the things that I wrote an article in February of last year talking about like what happens after COVID. And my view was that we were going to get a big increase in geopolitical uncertainty. You know, food is a huge issue. There's a lot of food shortages that started back in 2019 and have only gotten worse. So now you're coming into fiscal drag, monetary drag, when you're looking at governments that spent throughout 2020 into 2021. And this is not just the U.S., again, globally speaking. So we're coming into rate rising, rate rises, uh, rate, rate rates going up around the world from a central bank perspective. You have governments trying to rein in costs. You know, there was there was conversations coming out of Thailand of, you know, can they maintain their diesel and gasoline subsidies given how much they cost? And for them to do that at the current price is seven point three billion US dollars. So does Thailand have seven point three billion dollars to, to just try to maintain some of these current prices? You know, the short answer is no. So when you start looking at these fears, and, and I think it's just all culminating at once, where you have the Fed going up, you have the, the, the government hamstrung in terms of giving additional subsidies, that, that you get that overreaction to the downside. Now, they'll use Russia as the excuse, but there's a lot of fundamentals kind of driving us lower. Okay, so yeah, it sounds like the risk-reward favors... Um uh, short equities and long oil. What about, what about gold? I mean, gold has breached $1,900 an ounce, um, probably on fears of geopolitical instability. I mean, what do you think gold will do a nice, you know, $50 run, uh, tanks are running across the border. 
Yes, I'm long gold. I like gold here. I, you know, and it may sound counterintuitive because I'm also long the dollar, but I think that they can move in the same direction at this point. And that's another piece of the commodity pocket where the commodity world and the dollar world have diverged. And I think that there's going to be a point of them coming back together. And again, they're going to meet in the middle somewhere. It's not going to be one way where the dollar will eventually start to soften and, and commodities will come back into the realm of you know, where, where the dollar is and the dollar strength. But I, I think that the dollar and gold, especially gold, is a place that's going to see a lot of um, safety at this point, especially as you see some of this fear in Bitcoin and, and Ether and some of the other pieces, which were always kind of claimed to be the new, you know, uh, the, the new technological gold. And, and I think that, that people are, are that's starting to go away a bit. And you're starting to get some of this, the uh, uh, correlations picking up between the tech world and the crypto world. And I think that's going to drive some additional buying into gold as well. And then, you know, <laughs> when war happens anywhere, people then start looking to buy physical bullion and everything else because the world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. So again, it goes both ways, but I think all of that really leads to a hoarding aspect. And that's going to be a positive for gold and gold miners, to be honest with you, because what is Russia? produce but a lot of gold and then they're going to have to replace that gold so that i also think that would be a benefit for gold miners and not just gold uh, outright yeah that's interesting mark what you said about kind of the hoarding so um you know I, i'm the land broker i i work i sell uh ranches and recreational properties here in new mexico and the guy that's my mentor in that side of my business um you know was telling me that if if war does break out he says the land business essentially stops because everyone's at home. They, they're scared. They don't know what's going to happen. They're uh, sitting at home watching the war on TV, things like that. And so I, I that was interesting to me because my initial uh, assumption was war would lead to more people wanting to buy land, places, you know, escape the cities and things like that. But it was interesting to me that he said basically the transactions in this kind of I'm in the higher end portion of the, the ranching and uh, real estate market um, basically come to a standstill. And I wonder if that hap- would happen in other sectors as well. People will stop spending, uh, you know, on consumer goods and start becoming, like you said, uh, hoarding more and more worried and kind of just focused on the geopolitical mess that's going on as opposed to, you know, uh, other things that usually happen if an economy was good. Yeah. I I think you get, uh, I think you get that, that kind of panic frozen nature where the uncertainty scares someone and they're, they're scared into inaction because, you know, they, they did this study back in Israel, uh, you know, when, when for people looking to get parole, and they found that people got parole before noon, uh, before 11 p, uh, 11 a.m. more than after 11 a.m. And and the question was why. And it's much easier to say no than it is to say yes, because to say yes takes a lot of cognitive thinking and, and assembly. So if you're doing a big transaction on land, oh, how am I going to get this? How am I going to afford it? You know, where am I going to get my equity? Where am I going to get the, you know, can I then, can I then finance it? And if I finance it, can I, do I have the income to cover the financing? If I'm looking to buy this land and repurpose it for something else, all of a sudden, all of these things become overwhelming and it's just much easier to say, no, 
uh, or or delay it or and and that's when people default into the easier answer which is always no and and i think that's when you start to get that inaction and then given like we're not exactly in, in, on a very strong footing on, a, on an underlying economic level, globally speaking. So it just makes that, that kind of issuance much easier to say, you know what, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to give it six months. And that's when you get a, lo- a lot of things punted to the right. Yeah. And that leads to general just slow down in, in, you know, retail sales number. But I mean, it sounds like, you know, people do get into that hoarding mentality. It might lower some of these inflation numbers. Although I think, the rise in oil and gas will offset that. Yeah, it comes down to sticky versus flexible. You know, gasoline prices will fluctuate every every third day, you know, but when you look at your healthcare, your rent, your mortgage, you know, these are things that are not going down tomorrow. You know, it that might take a year, two years to go down in any meaningful way. So on this sticky side, on the core component of it all, you have a lot of this 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 problematic pricing on owner's equivalent rent, on just rent in general, on where healthcare prices are. Like if you look at just prices in general, I mean, from an x-ray machine on down, everything is costing more. So that just gets passed on to the rate base. So when you look at some of these things that don't move quickly, that will take time, you know, that's where you get the stickiness. Yeah, you know, gasoline prices can go up and down 15 cents in a matter of two weeks, but you, you're not going to see your rent, your landlord coming back and saying, hey, guys, you know, by the way, uh, my, my costs have gone down, so I'm going to actually pass that on to you. No, that's going to go in his pocket. That's going to go, you know, that's, so those are some of these pieces where – when you look at at, um, at 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 core inflation at this quote unquote sticky side, you're not going to see that, which is again going to eat into I think real spending and where some of that's going to go over the next uh, you know let's call it the next twelve months. Yeah, that's very interesting. It's it's a uh, it's a distinction between like you said the sticky and the flexible that that is not made a lot in the media. Really, we just see the numbers, um, but like you said, there are. You know, uh, you know, and people say that inflation can be a psychological phenomenon as well. You know, once people get used to higher prices, things become, you know, much stickier. Um, So kind of just something that just came across my screen is that Putin is going to address Russia here any minute, apparently. And um, the EU came out and said that uh, the EU's Borrell said, quote, I urge Putin not to recognize Ukrainian regions independence. Um, and so they said they're going to basically apply sanctions if Russia does uh, recognize those those regions as independent. So we'll see what Putin's going to say. And like you said, we have to pay attention to the um, to the wording here. Is there anything you're going to look for in this speech specifically? Yeah, it's going to be you know is he is he claiming the whole region as independent or the Russian uh, or the rebel held? So if he says the region of Donbas. That's a problem. If he says the rebel held region of, that is going to be a very key distinction in what does this look like? And just to just to go back in time in terms of where we were with Ukraine, because you might say, like, why does he care so much about this region? And it's because throughout history, this is where a lot of Russians have settled. So if you look at when the USSR uh, was breaking up, Russia needed the Ukraine to stay within its fold because they were trying to create a union of sorts, but they needed the Ukrainian economy and manpower to make it stick. So when President Bush Sr., 
Blair gave a speech before Parliament ahead of the independence vote, he he tried to make the distinction of there's a difference between independence and freedom. And he essentially said, you can have freedom without independence because we did not want an independent Ukraine. And for a lot of reasons, because we were concerned about what a destabilized Russia would look like. We were concerned about what a new, a new nuclear power would look like, because at the moment Ukraine de- uh, declared independence, they became the third largest nuclear power in the world. So when you looked at how the vote went, even Crimea voted for independence at a at a 60 to 40 vote. And there's always been fights that it was stuffed. But again, that's that's a, a conversation for a different day. And, and the Ukraine got their independence. Now, when you're looking at where that went from there, we wanted to make sure that the nuclear weapons were given back to Russia. So that became the uh, the Budapest Memorandum, where they were coming up with some sort of an agreement that made everybody comfortable in terms of borders and in terms of the transfer of power of these assets. Now, given even though they were in the Ukraine, they didn't have the codes that actually existed in Russia. So, but throughout that period, there were still ties to it. Russia had a, essentially a, a, a puppet government within there. They maintained control. But there was, if you remember, after the Ukrainian vote, Russia lost 98% of its value. Like there was a huge problem, and that was a slap in the face. So when you look at how things have built up, they Putin has, and, and Russia in general, have, has done things to wake people up to the fact that, hey, we're still here. You know, you can't, you can't minimize us. And they've done that, you know, at different periods. When you look at after the Budapest Memorandum was 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 uh, was signed, the U.S. essentially moved on. And then when you look at what happened with Clinton and you had Kosovo and you had Bosnia, you know, that was when we started getting more involved. And we were talking about putting boots on the ground. And then what happened? Well, Russia sent in a column of tanks saying, get out of here. This is our turf. And we we said, "Okay, you know, we'll work with you. We'll provide air support, but no longer boots on the ground. Then when you look at when we brought in uh, an additional four entities in 2007 uh, into the NATO fold, what does Russia do? But he moves into Georgia. So then he moves into Georgia. He creates this this puppet government and he reestablishes this is our territory. Then you look at Syria when you look at, you know, trying to get a new global foothold. So when you look at where we are, this is another massive saber rattling of saying we are here we are Russia, and you need to respect the fact that we may not be the hegemony of the region, but we are a regional power, and we should be considered as a, as a world power. Now, there are limitations in terms of government prowess, uh, I'm sorry, military prowess, military spending, and obviously demographics are against them. You know, they have a falling, uh, they have a, a falling population, not a growing population. So there's also how can they maintain this? Now, all, throughout all of this, the Ukrainians have maintained the fact that they do not want to be part of Russia again. You know, you know, when you talk about, you know, these, these lists and these gulags, essentially, there's a certain amount of some truth in that, but also a fear of if they come in, they're going to do exactly what they did in the creation of the USSR, and it's just going to be just like the same. And it's also a little bit of propaganda they can use of showing this is why you fight. This is why you don't give in. This is why if, if you do see tanks, you do everything you can to stop the advancement. 
And that's why when you look at the loss of life, you know, we've given them, not just us, but NATO in general, we've given the Ukrainians some really, really interesting equipment. And, and there's equipment that they did not have in 14. There's advancements that they have now that they didn't have. They're more united. There's, there's, a, uh, there's a certain amount of camaraderie. There's a lot of organization on their front that didn't exist because if you look at how Russia did it, they snuck in. They had guys without without signias. They had the black soldiers. They had all of these things that all of a sudden it, it, it cropped up, and it was in a soft underbelly because Crimea was always Russian. And that's what the, that's what the, you know, when you ask that question of did Europe screw it up, you know, we kind of, uh, we normalize it. We're like, well, you know, Crimea is more Russian than it isn't. So maybe this isn't so bad. And then they continue to build out the assets, building bridges, you know, uh, you know, harassing Ukrainian uh, merchant vessels and, and naval vessels. So there's definitely something where they want people to wake up and recognize, but in terms of actually going in and occupying a region, I mean, think about the U.S. and, and Iraq. I mean, think about how much money it costs, and, and it still costs, and think about how small Iraq is, and, and in terms of the, the populace versus the Ukraine. So you're going to go in and you're going to occupy that? So again, that's where we look at where we sit. So Putin might be saying, look, you screwed us in 98. You know, we're, we're where we are. We're finally coming back and we're going to come and punch you in the mouth because you were the you're the reason we had such a terrible last two decades. So there's a lot of there. I just don't think as much as he may want to do that. I don't think he understands the limitations, which is why. We're not going to come in and take the whole country, but we're definitely going to take what we want, and it's going to be on our terms. And I think that's what you're going to see when, when he speaks in what, whatever five, ten minutes from now. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's super interesting, Mark, and I, I, I tend to agree with the, uh, pretty much all of that. Um, a tweet just came across my screen from uh, RT, and they said, it, the quote says, Putin told Schultz and Macron, the, the uh, German and uh, French leader, that he was going to sign a decree recognizing the independence of the DNR and LNR. So if that's true, it sounds like, again, we have to parse through the language. Um, it sounds like uh, he's step, it's stepping up again. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, Mark, this has been, this has been a pleasure. I've learned so much. I know my listeners have learned a lot and been waiting a long time to get you on. Um, I would love to, uh, you know, uh, kind of watch how this plays out and maybe have you on again here pretty soon. Um, how can, uh, how can my listeners uh, find you uh, on social media, uh, find your company? Um, how can they get in contact with you? Sure. You can, uh, my Twitter handle is at Mark FNY. So I'm, o I'm always happy to talk on Twitter. You can find me on primary vision network. You know, I'm, I'm active in the comment section, trying to, uh, to, to feed the, uh, the ever, the ever arching beast of questions. And then you can also uh, find my company at C6 capital holdings.com. And then if you want to email me directly, it's just M Rosano at C6 capital holdings.com. Okay, great. And um, what kind of uh, services does your company provide? It's called C6 Capital Holdings, right? 
Yes, that's correct. We, we do consulting services, and then we're still in the fundraising phase of our uh, of our fund. You know, we, we've raised uh, several million so far. We just made our first purchase of several hydroelectric dams, and we're looking to continue to uh, raise funds for Fund One, which we're going to cap at thirty million. Okay, great, awesome. Well, again, Mark, this was uh, this was uh, an awesome podcast. I'm so excited to have you on. Looks like it's going to be a day of uh, a day of just breaking news, and and looks like futures are already reacting to um, to this announcement from RT. So we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, uh, much appreciated, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on, and to all my listeners, thank you so much for listening. This has been uh, an awesome podcast. If you want to learn more, you can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter is at retirement right. Also, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's the Warren Letter substack.com so again thank you all so much have a great uh holiday uh rest of your holiday weekend and uh i'll be back on wednesday bye-bye